For today's introduction, I'd like to read from the beginning of three books that I've decided to write about Jim Heinen's Elevens' lecture today. His lecture entitled, Same Content, Different Form. So, number one, an excerpt from my memoir. <laughs> In the first contemporary lit class I ever took, the teacher, twirled amber-gray curls, frantic hands, a nervous grin that would deflate to fret in an instant, scrawled an uppercase script across the blackboard, a quote from an essay by the poet Charles Olson, a quote borrowed from his friend Robert Creeley. The now famous phrase, a concept I had yet to consider, read, form is never more than an extension of content. Two, a sonnet from my book of poems. If it's the meaning one seeks to alter or revise, fold and set it away in a letter-shaped case. Two tickets then order on a fast train to form, and witness change at once as content is unpacked and disclosed. Let's take for a model the body at rest. When one's mind has less narrative sense when asleep, think a jumble, a stumbling muddle of pictures and leaps, but awake in lucid action, reason unites with its frame, the content then fluid made by structure alert. Today we will think of ways form reveals exactly what you've wanted to say. Let's your contra- content ring true. Number three. <clears throat> a paragraph from my new biography of Jim Heinen. <laughs> Jim's collection of short stories, The Boy's House, was an editor's choice book of the year by Booklist, The Bloomsbury Review, and Newsday. His stories have been featured on national public radios, All Things Considered, and he's been awarded a National Endowment for the Arts in both poetry and fiction. So here to discuss the relationship of content to form, perhaps more clearly, (laughs) please welcome Jim Heinen. Thank you, thank you. Actually, I, I don't think I can improve on that. I want to start out by uh, telling you one of the joys of teaching here for many years. You have to uh, do something like this for many years often before you start seeing uh, the fruits, not necessarily of your labor, but of the labor of the people who you have the good fortune of working with. I often think of uh, a metaphor for teaching uh, for me, the most apt metaphor for teaching is the equivalent of the guy in curling who uh, is, has the broom and is sweeping ahead of the, of the stone, which is, is, has its own direction. Uh, to me, the best moments of teaching are when you can see where somebody's going and you run ahead trying, trying to make a, a, a clear path. And that's a little bit the way I feel about uh, uh, this book that... Uh, is written by a, a former student of, what, seven years ago, Claudine? Six or six years ago. And it, it's one of the joys. It's when students start publishing their own books. And the fragments of a mosaic by Claudine Harris, let us uh, take a look at it. There it is. She's right over here. Thank you. As I'm thinking about this lecture, which I've been thinking about uh, for too long, uh, thinking about something so long, uh, what was once clarity becomes a, a kind of interesting muddle of considerations. But in oversimplification, uh, we can think about how, after a writer's main body of work is complete, 
how easily critics can summarize their life's work in a sentence. You know, Flannery O'Connor, uh, oh, she wrote about relig- on religious themes and Southern racial uh, issues. Uh, Raymond Carver gave a um, voice to the complex darkness of blue-collar loser types. Uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, oh, you know, she really had a handle on uh, dealing with the societal power structures that limit the worth of women. And John Updike, you can even summarize John Updike writing about the privileged and self-imposed misery in the wasp yuppie environment. That's actually about it, isn't it, on Updike? Uh, A quick quick aside on Updike, who I watched give a lecture in front of about 3,000 people in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the QA period. Somebody said, uh, Mr. Updike, you've been so productive, you know, 45 books in 40 years or something. Uh, You must must, uh, be writing all the time. He said, no, three hours a day. (laughs) Always three hours a day. Oh, I don't want to do disservice to those people by being so glib about them. Uh, But I think that we could at least consider the possibility that we are invited by destiny or chance or background, uh, by happenstance, to return to the same content over and over again. And we we can choose different forms to deal with that. We do seem to be stuck with certain obsessive concerns and keep working them over. Are we doomed to be nothing more than variations on the single theme of ourselves and our individual concerns and obsessions? Maybe, and I want to invite you to uh, not not desert your obsessions and make a brief case for re-exploring the same material in different forms. Don't cure yourself of your obsessions. The examples I want to read from my own work are rather humble compared to the powerful example of Alice Siebold. For years, it seems... She searched for a form to relieve herself from the content of her life. In the 1970s, when she was a freshman at Syracuse, she was beaten and raped. She returned home to recover for several months before returning to Syracuse. Incidentally, an aside, walking down the street near Syracuse one day, she spotted her rapist and he was arrested. So there was that at least that slight resolution. But, of course, any wise person knows that isn't never the the punishment of the perpetrator is never the resolution. At Syracuse, she took a class with Tobias Wolff, and I make quick reference to this uh, Tobias Wolff because he mentioned once, and he wasn't doing it in any way to disparage the work of Ella Siebold. He made the comment as a way of encouraging aspiring writers by saying when Ella Siebold was a student in his class, she didn't distinguish herself among her peers. And uh, I love that story. And, you know, uh, th- there are some people who think that the duty of the instructor is to stop some uh, people sh- uh, in their tracks before they waste their whole lives doing something that they're not destined to do. Uh, I don't think anybody knows, and looking at somebody's early work, what they are going to evolve into. So there should always be a patience with each other. She did go go to graduate school in Texas and then spent 10 years in Manhattan working mostly as a waitress. Um, So often I'm in a restaurant and I notice that somebody has a a way with language that uh, makes me ask the question, what do you really do? And, of course, what do you find? You find actors and writers. (laughs) So she had to deal with this traumatic experience of violence. And her first attempts were in poetry. I haven't seen the poetry 
I only know about this. He tried to deal with it by writing poems. In frustration, and I don't know much about this part of her life either, she then turned to drugs. She even did an early failed novel. In 1995, she moved to California in her 30s and applied to graduate school at the University of California in Irvine. And it was here that she decided to try the memoir form. And actually what began, what came out of a class exercise, hooray for class exercises, (laughs) don't underestimate the class exercise, the memoir Lucky was a spinoff and evolvement from an in-class writing exercise. So Lucky was uh, the memoir dealing with the violent event of her life. And um, it's called Lucky because one of the Syracuse cops said that she was lucky. She wasn't dead. Uh, And that might make the cop sound like an insensitive person, but there's another way of looking at it. Supposedly, he knew of other rapes in the very area that ended up in death. Lucky was published in 1999. Now, what? We're talking 17 or 18 years after the violent assault at Syracuse. Well, as many of you know, she returned to the same material again, this time in the novel form, and she was ready to write it. The Lovely Bones, a daring premise novel in which a 14-year-old girl who has been raped and murdered tells her story from heaven published in 2002, only a few years after the memoir Lucky. It was a book. How many have read it? Yeah, I got the whole room. It was a book, of course, that, that, that sold millions and won the American Booksellers Association Book of the Year Award for Adult Fiction in 2003. Uh, I give this extreme example, and I, I think it's useful, um, but traumatic experiences like hers demand... <laughs> That sounded like somebody just did something on their Mac. <laughs> My Mac sometimes makes sounds like that. It's a what? You've got mail. <laughs> well, traumatic experiences like hers demand reworking and perhaps multiple approaches. We've seen the same consequences in writers who were Holocaust survivors and veterans of wars. And I suspect we will no doubt see a similar phenomenon from writers who have survived several tours of duty in Iraq. But the rewards of reworking the same material in different forms are not dependent upon horrendously painful experience. The rewards can come from reworking quite ordinary and painless obsessions, even favorite images. I often think if you haven't outgrown your fourth-grade obsession with rainbows, you know, maybe you should return to it. Uh, return to rainbows and come at them with different angles. And certainly, if you've never outgrown your adolescent obsession with horses, give the horse a sonnet, a villanelle, a last will and testament, a memoir, a haiku. Uh, Many years ago, I I, I did a kind of an aside from my usual writing by doing a nonfiction book on American centenarians called 100 Over 100, a transforming experience of my life, not with the publication of the book, but in the experience of interviewing so many people over 100 years old, I realized at one point that I probably knew more people over 100 than any other person in the history of humankind. And some things became clear from interviewing so many uh, centenarians. By the time you're 100 years old, your life has become a rather simple skeleton of important things. And I found that for 
uh, many of the centenarians, there were a few images, a few incidents that were just dominant memories. They, you know, I can call them their obsessions. And I recall so well interviewing a woman from Iowa who had a 104-year-old memory. She was 108, and she was remembering at age four that being on a barge crossing the Missouri River, and she said she remembered how nervous she got as they put blocks behind the wagon wheels on the barge because the barge was swaying. And she said, what frightened me was the lapping of the waves over the side of the barge. And then we got on, on to another topic. And after 15 minutes of interview, she said, and those waves that, on that barge, I still remember the waves on the barge. And somebody in the room, a grandchild, said, oh, Grandma, you talked about that already. And I had already learned that when a centenarian returned to certain images, it was one of their images, and, and, you know, don't push her away from it. I said, oh, tell me more. And then she would tell me more, and it was like I got a revision of the same material. And it was beautiful because the revision always took me to some place I didn't expect to go and sometimes surprised the relatives who would be in the room. And I said, those waves coming over the side of the barge, what did that look like? She said, it reminded me of the pig that we had butchered the night before. It reminded you of the pig you had butchered the night before. What, what was it? You mean the white fat? She said, no, no, the brown meat. Why do you think they call it Old Muddy? <laughs> it's just wonderful, wonderful material. And it became um, an indication to me as I went on in interviewing centenarians that if ever they repeat anything, it was a signal that we had touched pay dirt of important material, even if it's an image. Uh, I, I keep repeating that, even if it's an image, just an image uh, to return to. Um, there is one old man in, uh, old is slightly redundant there, one old man in, uh, who grew up in Long Island who uh, talked about building a, a tractor uh, when he was on the island. He also talked about walking around Long Island and with all of the potatoes on Long Island, he would stop and he'd steal a potato. And I said, well, where would you go to cook? He said, cook it. You know, he'd rub it off and he ate raw potatoes uh, from Long Island. And uh, I found out later that the soil there was rich in selenium, which in the current health nut, uh, uh, looking at uh, supplements, selenium is one of the few supplements that probably can be proven to extend life. That's a freebie. Uh, <laughs> He started talking talking about the tractor a second time, and, and again the relatives interrupted him. You know, Grandpa, you, you've talked about that already. I said, "Tell me more about it. Where did you get the material?" And then he went on and on in another brilliant revision. So maybe I learned something from that—that that an image or narrative that had important roots needed to be revisited because it had. Uh, an importance that, that deserves just that. Some images are ours and uh, don't deserve them. Uh, what I want to do is try to nudge you to do trying, uh, making a concerted effort to explore the very same material in different forms and see what happens. The experiment may lead you into a form that you didn't realize was so naturally yours, or the restrictions and or liberation into a different form may lead you into depths and insights you simply did not reach in your first exploration into a subject that was important to you. I want to read a um, poem called The Yellow Girl. 
And the yellow girl started out as an observed image of a girl's dress hanging on a low branch of trees of a tree after floodwaters had subsided. Just a haunting image. The image actually wasn't from childhood. It was from my graduate school days here at the University of Iowa, and I lived out of town um, in a little apartment above a garage over the Iowa River, about 200 yards. And I would go take my walks along the Iowa River. And was after a flood, I saw this image of this yellow dress hanging in the tree, and it haunted me. Um, I wasn't writing poems at the time. As a graduate student, I was an English Renaissance specialist. I was working on my PhD with a specialty in Milton. And I, went, I left Iowa City, and I went off to teach at the University of Michigan for a few years. And this was still during the Vietnam War. And um, as a young boy professor, uh, many of my students were coming back from Vietnam all shot to hell. And so it became an incredibly uh, difficult identity crisis time for me as it was for many young professors who had gotten students' uh, deferments and then had students of our own come back from Vietnam with limbs missing. And as I was sitting in a small lake cabin in the Upper Peninsula after my first year of teaching, starting my dissertation on Milton's Paradise Regained, I realized that being a Renaissance scholar was not a life for me. The Vietnam War affected many of us the way 9-11 affected many people a few years ago. The horrors of it all drove us inward. The horrors drove me to poetry, as 9-11 did for so many people. And the image of the yellow dress kept coming to mind. This horrible word that's around in workshops nowadays, it resonated for me. (laughs) The Yellow Girl was one of my very first poems. And it goes like this. A young boy plays in the fields around the pond. Often he imagined when days are long with dust and sun that he sees sees ducks and bullheads swimming there. But he knows the pond is dry. He has been there, pinched the crawdads into dust. He has gone there thirsty, hoping that a spring has broken loose and water waves like oat fields in the breeze. He waits for the great spring flood. When it comes, for the first time he sees, more than in dreams, water suspending corn stalks from the trees like rotting fruit and every field flowing with the flood. When the plains emerge, he finds the pond brimming with fresh dark water and near the shore, a delicate and torn yellow dress the flood has brought from somewhere. He watches it move on waves, wanting to reach and take it, but he sees it live for water, moving with the form of a lovely girl swimming. He has never learned to swim, but he leaves his clothes floating with hers on the water where their sleeves reach to touch like friendly fish or ducks. He returns to his fields through the briars, steps naked into the pasture where he cannot find the yellow girl nor imagine the fields where she lives. I think the romantic um, language and sentiments were aligned with the soul sadness I had at the time. But I also think of what my mentor, William Stafford, once said about the way language, once it starts going, has a way of inventing what follows. I once sat in on an interview between Richard Hugo, the poet who uh, spent most of his career in Missoula, Montana, was interviewing Stafford for a Stafford issue of the Northwest Review out of Eugene. 
And uh, Hugo came upon the line in the Stafford poem. The line was, and slung in their cynical constellations. And Hugo said, you know, there's this darkness in you, Bill. And it comes out in lines like that. You know, there, there's really a darkness to your philosophy. And Stafford said, oh, maybe. But I think now, thinking you're looking at that word cynical, I thought that cynical just came so nicely between slung and constellations. <laughs> I just liked the sound of slung in their cynical constellations. I do remember following the language and sentiments in the poem Yellow Girl as if it invented itself down the page. The process was a dance between my inner life and the life of the language as, on the page as it evolved and suggested where to go in its rhythms and in its imagery, and maybe even in its sentiments. So it was about a decade later I started writing what some people call my boy stories, and for some reason the image of the yellow dress revisited me. Without looking back at the poem, I wrote this little story that appears in the one-room schoolhouse. When drainage tile was put in bottom lands, corn got could be planted where only slough grass grew before. But the tile drained the pond, too. The boys couldn't remember when ducks and bullheads swam there, but the pond was still surrounded by willow trees and made a good place to get away from everything. They'd go down to the pond and look for old bottles and badger holes, or they'd make dust castles out of the pond bed. Then one year there was a big flood, and the pond came back in spite of the drainage tile. When the waters went down, the boys walked to the pond to see what it looked like with water in it. They brought fishing poles, figuring that wherever there was water, there would also be fish. Corn stalks and trash from all over the county, country, county hung in the willow trees, and the pond was brimming with muddy water. They fished for an hour and now and then saw ripples in the water that told them something alive was in there, but they couldn't tell what. Then one of the boys hooked something. It didn't fight much but it was big enough to bend his pole like a horseshoe. The boy managed to pull it slowly towards the shore. They were expecting a big mud turtle, and they had their sticks ready. Then part of the cat, cat showed itself on the surface, a large rolling motion like a big fish turning over on its back as it swam. I saw its yellow belly, shouted one of the boys. It's a giant catfish. But it wasn't a catfish. It wasn't anything alive at all. It was a dirty dress the flood had brought from somewhere. The boys took it off the hook and laid it out on the shore. It was a girl's dress. When they squeezed the water out, they could see that it was yellow with small red flowers. It had two pockets and white buttons at the neck. The boys fastened the buttons and checked the pockets. They were empty. The dress lay on the shore and the breeze started to dry it. The colors became clearer and brighter as it dried and the hem ruffled a little in the breeze. As a joke, one of the boys drew a head over the dress. The other boys joined in, scratching legs and arms in the soft dirt. There, one of them said, there's our yellow girl. The boys left her lying there, knowing there was little chance that such a flood as the last one could come and wash her away. They went down to the pond often that summer, always saying they were going fishing, and they did catch a few small bullheads. The yellow girl stayed in place through the summer. And when the weather changed her at all, the boys fixed her up again by retracing her head 
arms and legs in the dirt. They came to think of her as their sleeping beauty, though nobody ever stooped to kiss her. Now, see, I don't know what the applause means. It means mean the story's a lot better than the poem. You know, I ask myself, uh, the, the, you know, I know this. I, I, I know that I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't plan for very different results. Uh, I think both versions are romantic in sentiment, but the language and tone clearly are very different. It may have been Horace Walpole who once said that uh, for a thinking person, life is a comedy, and for a feeling person, life, life is a tragedy. Was it that I was a feeling person when I wrote the poem and a thinking person when I wrote the story? I don't know. But I do believe the form invited a new way of dealing with the same image. Did the change in my own sensibilities or the change in form transform the material? A similar transformation occurred with the poem called The Great Strength, which was originally inspired by my fascination with what really constituted male strength. I had my aging father as a model, and as he grew older, his strength seemed to move from his muscles to his mind and his heart. It became an inner strength. But then he'd surprise everyone when that inner strength revealed itself in incredible feats of outward physical strength. He saved a man's life with that strength. That's a different story. The implicit muscle of the great strength is what I became fascinated with. And I had uh, written a poem called The Great Strength that goes a little something like this. Those who bulged from their shirts like straw from tightly tied bales, who won fistfights at the fair, caught the grease pig, wrestled the steer, were strong men of the plains. But the great strength was private, known only to old farmers who could see the power hidden in the face of a peddler or farmhand in the strangely shaped body, pinched shoulders, and spreading hips bent over like hybrid grain in the wind. When the fields had been cleared, when the last hay was stacked, the last fence fixed, when the cellar was sealed for winter, always there was an accident, and he would be there, with jackknife or pliers or bare hands, his strength coming out from all its secret parts. For a moment we knew, a wagon set upright, a hand pulled free from moving gears. It was all in the wrists or the legs or the eyes. Afterwards, there was no excitement at all, and only a few saw him fade back to his body. This became a story, also called The Great Strength. Uh, The time gap here was more like 20 years. There were many strong men in that neighborhood, ones who showed up at county fairs and wrestled a steer, or went into the ring with a circus wrestler and threw him out in 10 seconds. There were men who came to the sales barn every Saturday and took bets on what they could lift, usually a young steer in one of the pens. Men who took on any two men in tug-of-war. Everyone knew who the strong men were and who to bet on. But then there was a man nobody noticed, who never tried showing off in front of people. He was the one with the great strength. How could you tell who had the great strength? Well, you couldn't. Not until there was an accident. Then he'd be there like the one good spring that never goes dry in a dry year, 
Just when you needed him, he'd be there and not even smiling, just doing what had to be done, pulling a hand free from moving gears, lifting a wagon off somebody's leg, pulling a hog from a well, whatever had to be done. The boys saw the great strength once, late August when everything was quiet, all the oats harvested, all the straw stacked, farmers in town visiting. An old church was being torn down and people were standing around watching. The caterpillar was pushing big pieces out of its side. All of a sudden, the wind caught a piece of loose roof and lifted it off the church. It went wobbling through the air like a sick bird, then landed on one end and tipped over on a bunch of people. When all you could hear was everyone screaming, the roof started rising slowly, as if the wind had caught it again. It wasn't the wind. It was the great strength in old overalls lifting that big section of roof. All of those trapped people were crawling out, scratched and bleeding. Afterwards, everybody was looking out for the people who got hurt under the roof. And after a while, no one knew for sure where the great strength had gone. He was like the wind in this way, too. I now come to the dilemma of uh, having one more example or um, wrapping it up and asking for questions. The, um, what do you think? Got one more example. Um, this, 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 is a, this is an obsession with, with, with an image, and the image is of tornadoes. And um, I think most, most kids who grew up on, on farms at some point or, or <laughs> grew up in farms in, in Iowa, um, at one point or another, uh, had to deal with a tornado. And I wrote a tornado poem. Again, this is among my very early poems. That night against a copper sky there rose a body, large and dark, extending land to cloud. On the dusty stack of last year's hay, I sat and watched it lumber nearer, wavering, frayed, and almost letting loose to stringy clouds. Then tightening towards human form, steadily it looked at me, and I knew it was a woman. For all I knew of women was there, the mystery I dreamed beneath the flowing skirts of ants, the fleshy angles of teenage girls, and now a broad hip swaying, a lithesome, fluid rhythm that was always foreign, always close to my imagining, a song translated to the sky and one with it. From all directions came her silence, breathing in my breath, a feeling heavy from inside that could have been a wish to leap into her grand revolving. My hesitation broke her silence into laughter, shattering the oats. I felt the urge the fence posts followed, leaping from their dull lives in earth to dance the sky, or at least to let my clothing go the way the corn in all its ordered rows let go its leaves and see to be one with swirling cloud. Half mad with yearning, half crazed by fear, I burrowed down to root myself in hay, and then from near the hoghouse a sow ascended. A wingless flight into the guttural roar of mud and dust, and thick form turning slowly, its snout agape, its short legs peddling air, a crazy celebration, her joining as if by choice, the sky hilarious with debris. First rain, then the stinging sky struck my face, all her darkness was upon me, all her rage. The pig was gone. I heard my own unwilling scream of terror and turned face down, clawing like a rodent trapped in hail. 
With no choice but to live it out, I scratched and writhed, praying, prying the stubborn sea of hay, my only hope a burial. Submerging so deep that sight and sound were gone, I lived the single smell of molding musty hay. Whoever it was survived, climbed through my chest, and I stood upright into torrents of friendly rain on the fire of torn skin. The bristling sow weaved through my mind. Somewhere I imagined her still skirmishing with filthy air, still turning over and over in a sky of wreckage. I heard the rescue sirens, frail strands of sound. I saw the sad, disheveled farmyard. I saw the waxen faces of my frightened parents peering from the cellar, and I laughed, already denying those reports of finding 30 miles east, stomachs sliced by the free-wheeling plowshares of the sky, the haughty, grunting, earthy sow. Well, I think another 20 years transpired, and then in the uh, section of a young adult novel I wrote called Being Youngest, which is a story of two uh, 10-year-olds, a boy and a girl, who become competitive best friends. The girl is from North Dakota, and uh, she's, they're, they're always uh, one-upping each other about who knows more about what, her being from North Dakota and he being from Iowa. There's also a little religious strain in here because the, both of them are from a, a very exclusive, uh, haughty uh, Dutch Calvinist tradition that has very little tolerance for anybody who's not like themselves. And um, so they're standing outside and, and, and they're seeing uh, a storm approaching. Um, Look, lightning, said Henry. God's telling you to quit lying. I ain't lying, she said. Maybe in a minute you'll be all wet. That would prove something. We got a lot bigger storms in Iowa, I'll bet, than you ever got in North Dakota. We had worse drought in North Dakota, I'll bet, she said. This one time in North Dakota got so dry that the preacher had to baptize this one little baby with spit. Cut it out, said Henry. <laughs> they stopped near the spot where Buster, that was their dog that got killed, was buried and went into the grove to where they had left the food. Oh, that's a kind of Hansel and Gretel story. They sort of... Uh, wander off and, and have these secret packs. As they stepped back out into the ditch, a louder rumble of thunder boomed across the cornfields. That's a big one, said Henry. We could be getting a big storm. Spatters of lightning cut across the clouds. One, two, three, said Gretchen before a drumbeat of thunder sounded over them. What are you counting, he said. Miles, she said. Don't you know about thunder? After the lightning you count, and as far as you get is how many miles away the lightning is. Sounds to me you don't know nothing about weather. The next streak of lightning sounded like a curtain blind ripping over their heads, and the crack of thunder was on its heels. That was close, she said. Look, said Henry, what's that if you know so much? They both knew what it was. That's a twister, she said. Tornado, he said. Twister, she said. In North Dakota, we don't call them tornadoes until they touch down. They can hang in the sky like that like a bunch of string beans. Don't mean nothing if they don't touch down. They watched the dark funnel swinging from the bottom of a low cloud on the horizon swing slowly like a thick kite tail. It ain't touching down, she said. I seen them swing like that. I seen worse tornadoes than you ever seen, I bet, he said. Bet you ain't, she said. We lived in Tornado Alley. More tornadoes than Carter's got liver pills out there. What's Tornado Alley, said Henry. See, you don't know nothing about tornadoes. She said, Tornado Alley is like this big wide alley that only tornadoes can see. When a tornado looks down from the sky and sees Tornado Alley, it just turns right down it like a big old truck and comes roaring down on your head. <laughs> but you ain't never even been in a tornado, said Henry. No, I ain't been in one, but I seen them. And I seen what they done afterwards lots of times. Bet you ain't never been in a tornado, neither. Been in a storm cellar, said Henry. 
And I've seen what they've done to other people's places. This one time, a tornado come about 10 miles away on top of this one farm, and it just stayed there like it was mad at these people. It just jumped up and down on this one place without going anywhere. And it just smashed this whole farm to its itsy-bitsy pieces. Couldn't find a board on that place that was bigger than a toothpick. Did it kill anybody? Weren't nobody home, said Henry. If they'd been home, they'd been nothing but a grease spot. There's this one tornado in North Dakota, she said, went rolling down Tornado Alley about three miles away from our place, and it rolled up all the wire from the fields that were on its way, in its way. Just rolled up, the, rolled up this wire for miles. And when it stopped, you couldn't hardly see the top of this big wad of wire. I'll bet, said Henry. It's true, said Gretchen. In this one place, the tornado took stalks of straw and stuck them right into a tree, buried them right in the bark of the tree. Tree looked like a porcupine after that tornado got done with it. This one tornado about two miles away from our house, Henry said, it lifted these people's house right up off the ground and strung the telephone wire underneath it and then set the house right back down on top of it in one place, on one piece. All the furniture and everything was all right, just that these folks couldn't use their telephone for a while. <laughs> That's nothing, said Gretchen. <laughs> in North Dakota, at this one place, a tornado took the cement basement floor right out of this house. That was the big one. It sucked up about five miles of farms and carried all kinds of stuff through the sky. And about 100 miles down, it started puking everything back down. <laughs> Wagons and dogs and television sets and what have you just come pouring out of the sky. I heard about that one. <laughs> I thought that was in Kansas. <laughs> nope, North Dakota, said Gretchen. But the worst one is the one that clobbered this big Catholic neighborhood. We went riding by there after church the next day, and there was bed springs all over the fields. You couldn't hardly go nowhere because you'd run into another bed spring. They got so many kids, you know. You're always talking bad about Catholics, said Henry. It ain't right to go talking bad about other people. What do you know, said Gretchen? You ain't never even met a Catholic. That's what you said. That don't make no difference, said Henry. Catholics are just people who got grandpas and grandmas that were born in a different old country than ours. You're sure you're so right about everything. What's that, said Gretchen, pointing out across the fields. They saw it together, the splash of dust and mud and uprooted corn. Is this tornado took root. Not a twister anymore, a tornado. And as it did, they felt the first cold drops of rain. Look how fat it got on the bottom, said Gretchen. It's moving, said Henry. Like two people standing on a railroad track, watching an approaching locomotive, they took a second to decide whether the fact that it was getting bigger and bigger meant that it was coming straight at them. It was too late to go home. The only th chance they had was to run for cover wherever they could find it. <clears throat> Well, I feel a little bit self-indulgent. It was fun reading that. I feel a little bit self-indulgent, but, but I hope these examples are useful to you and that they'll give you the freedom to revisit your own material in different forms. Um, I can only say that I found the rediscovery of returning to a topic in a different form was an even greater pleasure the second time than it was the first. Thank you. I'm open for questions. <clears throat> Oh, that's a, a, a young adult novel called Being Youngest. Yes? Whoever mixed the forms inside the same piece, 
You know, I haven't consciously done that, but I think that there are what I would consider prose poems within especially descriptive passages in, in novels that I've written. Um, I, I think it's a great idea. I, I asked my class uh, yesterday if how many were acquainted with uh, Kathleen Norris's Dakota because she, she had a tendency in that book to bring into, the, uh, into that text uh, part of her own natural um, poet, and she started out as a poet. I first met, met her when she was doing, um, I think she was doing poetry in the schools, and so she uh, has a natural lyrical sense, but of course, of course she also became quite a serious thinker in the, um, um, in the tradition of the thoughtful, reflective, uh, kind of monk-like, monk-like and, and nun-like uh, thinking people of reflecting on religious thoughts in a kind of meditative way. So as you get these kind of philosophic essays mixed with these lyrical pieces, so I think that's a great model for the genre mixing in a way that I've never really done it. Yeah. Yes? What are the limits of that? For example, like in, a, in a memoir I'm writing, I, I'm, I would like, I play with the idea of inserting very small, short, short pieces of fiction. Well, whenever you, when, to, to me, I, I, what flashed in my mind is, is a quotation from Andy Warhol. I just love this definition of art. Art is anything you can get away with. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds flippant, but there, there's something really true about it. And I think if you look at just how daring something like Alice Siebold's final attempt at dealing with her own violence of her life, I mean, what a hokey idea to have a, a novel told from the point of view of a 14-year-old in heaven. I'm taking, I'm extracting from this simply the daringness of it. And I, I, I think we are also polluted with our learning of what is the right way to do it. By the time we're 10 years old, I think we are more advanced critics than we are creative artists. Maybe at about 12, we start losing it because the critic is always on our back. back. Uh, different personality times. Types. Some people have to evaluate as they go. Some people, if they evaluate as they go, stop themselves in their tracks. Those of you who do evaluate as you go, as you are doing, you know, take the risk of saying, what the heck, and let the experiment go on. You're young and healthy. You have plenty of time to revise. <laughs> Others? Yes. What was your first book or your second book? What was the name of the books you read from, your books? I, I, the the um, poems I'm reading from a new and selected called uh, Standing Naked. And the fiction is from um, The Boy's House, the most recent, and from The One Room Schoolhouse. Okay. Yeah. And the novel is being youngest. Is it lunchtime? Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right.